0: Ephesians chapter 6, but we're going to do something a little quirky tonight in that we're also going to begin with the very first verse of Ephesians chapter 1, and you'll see why this makes sense. So, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and then the first half of chapter 6. Let me read it for us. Uh, Verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus... And then in in chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is God's word for us tonight. And uh, if you would, please pray with me, and let's ask God to help us try and make sense of this before we take a look at it. So let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, in these next few moments I ask for your help. You know that um, we have no hope of understanding this apart from your intervening and enabling grace to us so holy spirit please come and be our teacher tonight and we pray uh, in jesus name amen now i can think of countless movies as i'm sure you can that tap into the boredom of suburban life um Basically, where you have a situation like this where you have a guy who uh, is trapped in a boring and mindless job, who sits at his desk daydreaming of a better life, and who goes home to screaming children, and he wakes up and does this process over and over and over again every day for his entire life. And you have a a woman in the movie who is trapped at home with the kids, um, caught up in this routine of changing diapers and fixing lunches and who wakes up every single day and does laundry and cooks dinner and does that cycle over and over again and again for every single day for the rest of her life. I'm sure you can think of countless movies or books or stories that kind of tap into this idea. And the question is, what is the remedy, what's the solution for the lackluster, boring details that make up so much of our lives? Well, there is a secular remedy to this problem, the problem of sort of the ordinary, problem of the mundane, and the secular response is kind of multifaceted. Well, one, it's spice up your sex life. And there's lots of ways to do this. You can actually um, do this thing uh, called swinging, where you get together with swingers, where you actually get together with other couples and swap partners for the night. This is real. Um, You can, uh, you know, deal with prostitutes. Porn, hook up with uh, somebody younger, more attractive. These are all kind of different ways to spice up your sex life. Another sort of facet is just to make a whole lot more money so that you can buy faster cars, buy a second home, buy cooler clothes, buy the latest technological gadget. And sort of the last route that I could think of is, I guess, uh, travel, just adventure, get out there, find something exciting to find. That's sort of the secular remedy To this problem of the ordinary. But there is a religious and sometimes a Christian remedy to this problem as well, which goes like this. Uh, You can go to a custom-designed conference, which is going to be really exciting, and kind of break you break you out of this ordinary. Uh, There is an enormous marketplace of books and seminars and audio stuff on the internet that all promise to let you in on the Christian secret of whatever it is you want, the Christian secret of financial security, the Christian secret of weight loss, the Christian secret of a better sex life, whatever it is. And, you know, within some Christian circles, the remedy is go on an emission, go on a missions trip, get involved in missions, specifically overseas, because that's where the action is. So the secular remedy is spicier sex life, money, adventure, travel, the religious, Christian remedy to this problem is conferences, books, adventure, mission trips. Here's what I want you to see. Both of these remedies are essentially the same. Because the remedies for both of these solutions is escape. Escape from the ordinary. And when you live this way, when you set up your life to say, I'm going to escape from the real world that I live in, this sets you up to live a reckless, restless, perpetual life of addiction, essentially. Where you go, it's like, I I go to this conference, and I get jazzed up for a while, and then that sort starts to fade, and that sends me looking for another conference. And I go to that conference and get jazzed up. And when that fades, look for another, and then for another, and another. And that is your... Life. It's running from and constantly escaping from the reality of your real world. And it sets you up. It doesn't work. Neither one of these solutions works. So what is the Bible's answer to this question of what do we do with the ordinary, boring, routine tasks that make up most of our lives? Well, that's the question of this passage tonight that I want to look at. And normally, as we kind of set this thing up, I like to give you a roadmap of where we're going. But We're going to do things a little bit differently because what we're going to do is just look at this passage from a broad overview, kind of look at it from the whole of it. Child hushes. (laughs) And then what we're going to do after we look at all of it from a bird's eye view is we're going to kind of extract three implications of it at the end. So hopefully that will make sense. We're going to look at it all at one chunk and then just draw out three implications at the end. So let's look at it. Um, Verse 1 of this very first letter, let me just read it to us again. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing this to the saints, which is Bible talk for Christians. And if you notice that language, they seem to be in two places at once. I tried to emphasize it when I read it. They are in Christ, and yet they are in Ephesus. Both of these realities is true about them. They, they have this God-defined identity where they are in Jesus, meaning they are enthroned with Jesus right now in heaven, and they live in real time and space in a particular city called Ephesus with traffic and odor and chores to do and marketplaces and all kinds of stuff like that. They seem to be living in two places at once, in Christ and yet in a city. And you have to see this. Both of these realities are unbelievably important. And the Bible puts emphasis on both of these. Because if you've been with us this semester, uh, we we began in Ephesians chapter 1, which Paul starts talking about the gospel in big, enormous, gargantuan ideas. I mean, he kind of starts this letter in the theological stratosphere, where he says, your salvation has been planned before the foundations of the earth. God has this plan of renovating the entire universe. The cross is the central turning point of all of history. I mean, these are enormous ideas. And then, when you get to chapter 6, look where he has dropped us right in the middle of family and marriage and work. It is all very unsexy and unflashy, it is just very ordinary. I mean, this is where he drops us, and his the the reason he does this is because he knows that the extraordinary gospel is lived out in actually ordinary contexts, place places like marriage and work and family. That's what all this means. And so for the people in this room right now who do identify yourselves as Christians, you have to look at yourselves from two different lenses. We are simultaneously united to Jesus, enthroned victoriously in heaven, and yet right here in Boone with papers to write and laundry to fold and bills to pay. That is true. You are in two places at once. So let's just look at the rest of this passage in, uh, in chapter 6. We'll just kind of go through this quickly. That first little chunk, verses 1 through 4, Paul's uh, looking at the family. And he looks at children, and he says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now the word children there uh, literally means little children. Not people like me, who's a 30-year-old child of my 60-year-old parents. Saying, obey your parents still, Nat. No, this is referring to little children. So Zoe Kate, listen up. This is important. Um, but it goes on and it says, but honor your parents. So it means, okay, even if you're someone like me, we still have the responsibility. Someone like you, you still have the responsibility of honoring and respecting and listening to your parents. But it's not just this emphasis on the children. It's the emphasis on the parents as well. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't Raise them in such a way that makes them resent you and are and, filled with anger. Raise them up in the ways of Jesus. Teach them all the implications of the gospel. That's what that first chunk is about. It's about family dynamics. And then in the next chunk, he switches to the issues of work and vocation. So look right there in verse 5. He says, Uh, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Now just hit pause right there, because if you're anything like me, as soon as you hear that word, slaves, the thing that you think about is slavery of, like the slavery of American Civil War. And that's not the same idea, that's what's going on here, where you think of, okay, somebody being ripped from their home and is sold off as property in another place. That's horrific, and the Bible does not support that at all. But this is this is speaking to a different idea, where in the Roman culture, this is referring to something similar to indentured uh, servanthood. Well, basically, if, if, if you were in debt or something, you could kind of say, hey, I, you know, I owe you a bunch of money. Can I just work for you and pay it off and essentially be your slave to pay it off? And that's what they would do. And so re- literally one third of the Roman Empire were considered slaves. This is just sort of the way that employment was done kind of back then. And so, I mean, he's not speaking against it or for it. He's just speaking into the context. And he says, okay, slaves, or you could say employees, maybe you kind of use a different word, perform your duties well. He says, you are really working for the Lord. If you only perform great when your boss is watching you, you, you've got to realize that you have another boss watching you all the time, and his name is Jesus. So do your job well. And then it looks to the masters, or you could say maybe the bosses. It says, hey, you have to treat your employees rightly. You have to treat them fairly. By the way, you have a boss too. You have a master over you, and his name is Jesus. So do your work well, as if you're doing it for him. That's sort of the big overview of this passage. But what I want you to see is that all of this is very ordinary. We discussed this at the end of chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago. He talks about marriage, and then he talks about family, and then he talks about work. And all of this is very ordinary. So now I want to just draw out three implications of all of this. Try to make sense of this before we close out tonight. Here's the first implication of this. The gospel is worked out in real day-to-day life. That's the first implication, that the gospel is worked out in real day-to-day life. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, there is a secular and a religious remedy to the ordinary. And those are escape, get away from the ordinary, find something exciting. But what's the reason behind that? It's because the ordinary is boring and we're always failing at it. It's much more exciting to get you know, interested in something else other than the actual world that you live in. And so let me just ask you a question. For the Christians in the room, to determine whether or not you have bought into this thinking of the solution is escape, let me just ask you a couple questions to see if you fit into this camp. Is your spiritual health essentially determined by the highs that you get from conferences and camps? Are you surviving off of really exciting camps and conferences, is that sort of what is sustaining your spiritual health. Because I know what it's like. You go to a camp, you go to a mission trip, you go to a conference or whatever, and you're jazzed up, you're on fire for Jesus, and then you come back into the real world with tests to write and papers to write, or tests to take and papers to write, and the real world, and that excitement begins to fade, right? And so then you start looking forward to the next conference. But don't you see, this is saying... Christianity is lived out over here with the tests and with the laundry. It's not lived out over here with the conferences and the camps and the trips as great as those are. This is where your life is. Are you living it out over here with the day-to-day mundane details of your existence? Here's another question for you. Are you more enthusiastic about some cause, some exciting cause and more excited about that than you are the world that you actually live in. Because I know what it's like to get really pumped up about something way over on the other side of the planet and have the rest of your life essentially be in shambles. This is saying the exact opposite. Live out your Christian life where you are. I'm not saying mission trips and excitement over causes is bad. This is just saying you have to live out the gospel and be a Christian here and now. Every other worldview and philosophy says you have to escape the here and now. The excitement is over there somewhere else. And Christianity says the exact opposite. It says the Bible never pulls you away from the details of your life. It says plunge into them. There is uh, one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor uh, in Maryland for like 35 years. And here's what he writes. He's kind of reflecting on doing Bible studies with people. And here's what he says, uh, kind of reflecting on his experience. He says, I have always loved teaching Bible studies, especially in homes or retreat settings with a dozen or so women and men. There is kind of a low-voltage thrill that comes as diverse personalities and temperaments discuss and comment and exclaim over the revealed text of God's word. But... Then later, as I would meet these same friends in their workplaces and homes, I observed little, often no, continuity between the electrifying insights of the Bible and the conditions of their work or home. And then here's what he writes. It is so easy to get excited and enthusiastic about the gospel outside of where we have been actually placed. Here's what this means for you. To live out the implications of the gospel means that you have to be a good roommate. Some of you are excited about the gospel, excited about missions work, excited about ministry, and yet you're crappy roommates. And you're inconsiderate of the other person's space. And you're rude, and you don't do your chores. And this is saying, that's where you are, that's where you live as a Christian. It's right there. Be a good roommate. Do it now. That's what it means to be a Christian in that place. Here's another, here's another thing. Here's what else this means. is that your bio test matters. And your chem lab matters. And that English paper matters. Those things are important. Believe it or not. They are, and it is worth your time to study. And it's worth your time to study well. You can actually serve Jesus and please him by studying well as you're sitting over there in the library for hours on end, stressed out. You can serve him well by studying. Those, these details of your life actually matter. Here's what I want you to see. So much of the Christian world, sadly enough, is selling you a lie, I think, which says that Christianity is this exciting spiritual rush all the time. And it does not know what to do with paying your bills and doing dishes and changing diapers and getting your car repaired. In other other words, 98% of your actual life. You have to let the Bible retrain your thinking on this. The Bible does not call you to escape from the details of your ordinary life, but to embrace them. That's the first implication of this. Here's the second one. Here's the second implication. The gospel takes all of life seriously. Or in other words, you can maybe title it this way. The, the, the gospel takes vocation seriously. Now, I know not everybody in this room is called by God to be a full-time uh, missionary or to do full-time vocational ministry. I know that. But did you know, and sadly enough, a, a lot of the Christian world doesn't know what to do with you. And they, as I've experienced it, indirectly communicate to you that you're somehow selling out to the culture. And I think that's nonsense. L- let me explain what I mean. I have a, f- a friend who does RUF work on another college campus, and on this particular college campus, there's another college ministry. And don't worry, we don't have this particular college ministry here at App. But this particular college ministry, their whole philosophy of ministry is to get people uh, and recruit students to go do overseas mission work to a particular uh, Uh, foreign country and so he sits down with one of the students who's kind of bought into the mojo of this campus ministry and said "Um, hey quick question what would you do if somebody came through your ministry who is a Christian but feels like they're called by God to serve him in the business world and the student said well we, we wouldn't really concentrate on him we would he wouldn't be invested in. He would kind of be, you know, looked over. He's welcome to come, but he just wouldn't be invested in. We invest in the people that are committed to this. My friend is like, doesn't that seem to severely truncate the Christian life? The Bible seems to have a lot more to say about life and vocation and mission than, than this. And you seem to be pigeonholing Christian maturity into one particular thing that the Bible doesn't seem to do. There is a problem with this way of thinking that says if you're not doing mission work, if you're not doing full-time ministry, then you're a sellout. First of all, this whole way of thinking doesn't believe the gospel because this way of thinking can only produce self-righteousness or self-loathing. Because if you buy into this way of thinking and say, Christian maturity is really me going overseas and doing mission work then if you do it, you've lived up to your standards and you have now all the resources in the world to feel self-righteous and proud and look down on the people who don't go. And so if you buy into this way of thinking and don't go, then you become self-loathing. You're a failure. You're not a good Christian. This way of thinking only produces self-righteous, prideful people or self-loathing failures. The Bible does not produce people like that. The gospel does not produce people like that. This, does, this view does not take real life seriously. But thankfully, the, the Bible actually does. It says you can be called by God into a million different spheres and serve him there. I mean, just look at the passage. It says if you're an employee, serve Jesus in that capacity. If you're the boss, serve Jesus in that capacity. If you're a parent, serve Jesus in that In that capacity, whatever capacity you find yourself called to by God, that's the place where you serve him. So you can be a good missional Christian and be in the business world or the legal firm or on a farm or a stay at home mother or as a garbage collector. You could work with your hands. Jesus did for the first 30 years of his life. I'm not downplaying missions at all. I, RUF would not be here on this campus unless we, unless we believed in advancing the kingdom through the sharing of the gospel. We're all about missions. I just want you to elevate every other vocation as well, just as the Bible does. So, what this means is wherever you find yourself called by God to serve Jesus, there, to be kind to your coworkers, to obey your boss, to be respectful of your boss, to pursue justice in the workplace, to stand up for those who don't have the same sort of social commodity that you might have. That's what it means. That's the second implication. One more to go and we're done. The gospel um, changes everything about everything. That's the last implication. The gospel changes everything about everything. Because this passage is situated within the larger context of the book of Ephesians. And if you remember, if you've been with us, the first half of the book of Ephesians is all about what God has done graciously to save you. It's all about the gracious work of Jesus' shed blood on behalf of those who don't deserve it. And so you can actually kind of boil down... The entire book of Ephesians into this sort of formula Jesus has graciously saved you by his blood, therefore, children obey your parents, parents raise your children up rightly, bosses treat your employees well, employees serve your bosses well, serve your company well. You could boil it down to that. The gospel is what changes everything. Your identity has been redefined. The gospel of grace changes everything now. It is the engine behind and driving everything that you do now. So, so for example, let's say you sit down for your dinner at Central and you have your little tray and you say, okay, well, I'm going to eat my mashed potatoes now and then I'll have a bite of my steak and then I'll have a little bit of salad and, and then I'll have my salt It's like, no, that's not how how salt works. It's not partitioned (laughs) off to the side. You know? Salt doesn't stand alone. Unless you're really weird and I see fingers being pointed to the weirdos. Um, (laughs) Salt is not off by itself. It shouldn't be. It is in and through everything else. And that's how the gospel works as well. If you just partition the gospel off to the side, you've messed it up. The gospel has to be the engine under everything else, driving everything else. So what is the gospel then? Well, we've said it a million different times this this semester, that it's, it's the good news that you are more sinful than you ever thought you were. And it's the good news that you are more loved and cherished than you could have ever imagined at the same time. When you see Jesus hanging up on the cross, knowing in your heart that should be me up there, receiving God's judgment and displeasure and punishment. And the only reason I'm not is because of his grace and his love towards me. When you begin to see that, that's what melts your heart. And then when you walk away from the cross and then begin to move out into real life, you now say, okay, I can't do things the same way anymore. I'm doing a lot of the same things. I'm going to the grocery store, putting gas in my car. I'm doing a lot of the same things, but I can't do them the same way So, for example, I can't get impatient with traffic anymore because Jesus has been patient with me. Or I can't stress out over my grades as much as I did before because my grades don't get to define me anymore. Jesus gets to define me. Or I can't hold a grudge against my family or against my roommate when they hurt me anymore Because Jesus has not held a grudge against me when I hurt him, but he actually forgave me. Well, here's one. I I can't be smug and rude to the waiter anymore when they screw up my order. Because Jesus was kind and compassionate to me when I screwed up everything. You see how this works? When you begin to get the gospel in your bloodstream and let it radiate into all areas of your life, it changes everything about everything. That's the last implication. So so let me um, close up here. Charles Dickens has a a novel called Bleak House. And in it, he kind of gives you this wide variety of really dysfunctional characters who are really excited about uh, big ideas and causes, and yet they totally neglect all the details and responsibilities of their actual life. So for example, there's this character that we get named Mrs. Jellybee and um, who one night, Mrs. Jellybee, has three uh, children over to her house for dinner and these children walk in the door and they immediately notice that her house is just a total wreck. I mean there's, uh, every room is littered, it's, it's uh, untidy, it's messy, it's just a total disaster and so uh, Mrs. Jellybee explains, you know, she tries to, you know, you know, make up for the mess by saying, well, I've been really busy, I'm super devoted to this cause in Africa where I'm corresponding with people, I'm writing letters all the time, and it's just taking uh, up a lot of my energy where I'm corresponding with a lot of these people for sort of the social wel- welfare of this particular village. It's just occupied a lot of my energy. And so the children are like, okay, so they come in and they sit down for dinner. Mrs. Jellybee serves up this food, and all of the uh, meat is kind of uncooked or half raw. You know, it's just a total disaster. So there's accidents all the time happening in the kitchen. She's putting the wrong food in the wrong dish, and it's just this total train wreck of a night. But here's the thing. Uh, she kept talking and dreaming the whole time that they were there about this disembodied cause that she was excited about in Africa. And meanwhile, she had totally neglected the real details of her life right around her. The house, the real people sitting right in front of her, the hospitality to them, because it was so much easier and more interesting and more exciting to get enthusiastic about something over there far away than the actual messy people and situations that she found herself in. And sadly, that picture is a picture of a lot of the Christian church And maybe for some of us in this room here tonight, where we're more enthusiastic and more excited about something else over there, and meanwhile our life right around us and our relationships are a mess. But you have to see this passage calls you to something different. This passage couldn't be the more opposite. Jesus did not live and die and rise in your place to pull you away from the details of your life, but to plunge you into them. Jesus calls us by his grace to live out the gospel in our real lives, which means as we study, as we relate to our roommates, as we play intramurals, as we go to restaurants, that's what this means. It means to be a Christian now, here and now in the place that God has put you. And I pray that God would make us into the type of people that don't neglect the real details of our lives, but actually embody the gospel in exactly those places. That's my prayer, so let me pray. Father, would you make us into the type of people that love to serve you in the conditions that we are placed in? With our friends, with our roommates, with our parents, with our schoolwork, with our professors. It's hard and it is messy, And it's easier to get excited about something else. Help us to follow and to serve you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.